Hi everyone, this is Michael. A bit of a disclaimer this week. The unenthusiastic critic and I are in the process of moving, and so our recording environment is less than optimal. If this episode sounds a little like we're recording in a big empty room with no soundproofing, that's only because we were, in fact, recording in a big empty room with no soundproofing. We hope it's not too distracting, and within a week or two we should have our new studio set up and be back to our usual, slightly less terrible sound quality. Enjoy the show. From Chicago, this is The Unenthusiastic Critic, a podcast about destroying your marriage one movie at a time. and welcome to The Unenthusiastic Critic. I'm Michael McDonough. I write about film and television at unaffiliatedcritic.com. With me today is a true Vulgarian, my lovely wife Nakia, also known as The Unenthusiastic Critic. Hello. On today's episode, we're sitting down for Nakia's first viewing of one of my favorite comedies, John Cleese and Charles Crichton's Fish Called Wanda, released 30 years ago this week. And Nakia, because they were both released in July of 1988, this is actually the first of two of my favorite comedies we're going to watch this month. So I thought it made sense for us to take a few minutes at the top of this episode to talk about comedy. Okay. And we are reasonably smart people, you and I. (laughs) Are we? So between us, I think if we take 10 or 15 minutes, we should be able to come up with a working definition of comedy and explain just precisely why something is or is not funny. You, you, You feel up for doing that? Well, you and I don't always agree on what is and is not funny, so this would be an interesting experiment, sure. One of the great American humorists, E.B. White, pointed out the futility of attempting to analyze comedy. Humor can be dissected as a frog can, White said, but the thing dies in the process, and the innards are discouraging to any but the purely scientific mind. Nevertheless, throughout the years, many relatively humorless people have persisted in attempting to define and explain humor. So let's, maybe one way to approach this is to look at a few of those theories, and needless to say, we're going to probably oversimplify, misrepresent, or completely butcher these. Yes. Okay. So we go back to, you know, Plato and Aristotle. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. They suggested something that has been called the superiority theory of comedy. Mm-hmm. which suggests that we laugh at the misfortune or inferiority of others. In other words, it's the I'm glad I'm not that guy philosophy of comedy. It's a good, it's a good form of comedy. It's, it's a rich vein of comedy. <laughs> now, this is the very definition of punching down yes. in comedy, right? Right. That's, you know, so that can lead to some pretty cheap jokes at the expense of people who probably don't deserve it. Mm-hmm. But there are nuances to this, and another funny guy, Thomas Hobbes, (laughs) talked about this view of comedy as being superiority to our own previous states. Mm. So we're laughing sometimes at, I'm glad I'm not that guy anymore anymore Mm -hmm. sort of comedy. Mm -hmm. So a lot of like cringe-worthy comedy sort of falls into that vein. The teen comedies of, like, I remember when I was that age. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, I'll give you an example. A scene from a movie, and I think you have not seen this movie, uh, Swingers. I have not seen Swingers. With John Favreau and Vince Vaughn. Mm-hmm. There is a scene in there where John Favreau's sad sack, unlucky in love character, he goes out to a club, he meets a girl, he hits it off, he gets her phone number, and he goes home and everything's great. 
and he decides to call her. Mm-hmm. And he gets her answering machine, and he leaves a message, and the answering machine cuts off before he finishes leaving his phone number, so he has to call back and leave another message. <laughs> and he's all nervous, and he's all flustered, and he gets cut off again, and he ends up calling back to her answering machine like seven or eight times oh, in a row. Oh, dear. Every message he leaves is more pathetic. He's trying to, he starts explaining that he just broke up with someone and that's why he's being weird. And it just keeps, it's one of the most uncomfortable scenes that I have ever seen in a movie. Mm -hmm. He just blows it. He like blows the entire relationship in a series of horrible answering machine messages. Horrible answering machine messages without ever having actually gone on a date with this woman. That's a rough one. And it's one of those ones that you, you know, you watch and it's like, yes, you were feeling superior to this pathetic human being, but you're also, you relate to it because it's like, yeah, we've all been mm-hmm. that pathetic at some point. We in our are lives. all very happy at the advent of cell phones and the, <laughs> would you like to keep this message or delete this message <laughs> option? Okay. So that was one theory of comedy. Okay. Uh, then we can move on to another funny guy, the great cut up Sigmund Freud. Mm, hilarious. Who proposed the relief theory of comedy, mm-hmm. which is that basically seeing laughter as a release valve. Okay. He basically said that we spend all of our time repressing emotions, especially like sexual desire and hostility towards our fellow human beings, and that humor is a venting of the psychic energy <laughs> that we would otherwise have to spend on repressing things. Okay. Uh, the example that comes to mind for me on that one is a scene that makes me laugh every single time because I relate to it so much, is the scene in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles <laughs> where Steve Martin confronts the agent at the car rental counter. <laughs> and he just loses his shit. Yeah. I want a fucking car <laughs> right fucking now. And I, you know, it's, I'm the guy who has trouble repressing yeah. saying that yeah. in every situation, particularly when I'm in an airport or traveling or am just exhausted and tired of dealing with people. Right. So just that cathartic <laughs> venting of frustration at this officious clerk at the rental counter. I'm the one that gets the extra TSA screening, so that's always, <laughs> always yeah. nice. When you and I are in an airport together, you just sort of yeah. pretend you don't know I me. Know. Well, because you just, like, they're already away. You know, putting their fingers in my hair, <laughs> looking for weapons. So I try to be very calm and collected in the airport. Okay, so another proposed universal theory of comedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, many people have proposed this one, including, you know, famed whoopee cushion connoisseur Immanuel Kant. <laughs> uh, this is the theory, the incongruity theory of comedy, which says that comedy is the perception of something that violates our mental patterns and expectations. Mm-hmm. It's a very popular theory, just that comedy is the art of the unexpected. Right. Right. I think there's a lot of subscribers to this theory. It sort of seems to explain everything from puns to slapstick to surrealism. Mm-hmm. Any number of examples we can give of that. My favorite would be another scene that I will laugh hysterically at every single time I watch it. Gene Wilder and Peter Boyle putting on the Ritz <laughs> in Young Frankenstein. It's just such an absurd situation. Yeah. <laughs> Where you have this old horror movie environment and you get these two guys in the tuxedos doing a dance number. And then it hits the brilliance of it, I think, is that the situation is incongruous. And then they're doing this well choreographed, sophisticated 
Gene song and Kelly's dance number. Or, yeah. <laughs> right. But when the monster has to sing, <laughs> it's really, it makes me fall down laughing every single time I watch it. Yes, I've been in the room when that scene has been on. You haven't even seen that movie, I but I've made but you I've watch seen that, that scene. scene a yes. number of times because of you. Yes. <laughs> okay, and finally, and most recently, mm. two researchers at the University of Colorado Boulder, Peter McGraw and Caleb Warren, in 2010 proposed a new universal theory of comedy, which they call the benign violation theory. Mm-hmm. Uh, according to this theory, humor occurs when and only when three conditions are satisfied. A situation is a violation okay. of moral or social norms. Mm-hmm. The situation is benign. Mm-hmm. And three, both perceptions occur simultaneously. In other words, you have to recognize... Both that it's a violation and that it's benign for comedy to happen. Mm -hmm. I think this is an interesting theory because you then, you know, you can get into discussing how the tone or style of a movie renders something benign that otherwise would not be. Right. And I think for an example of that, we can look at a movie we watched for the podcast recently, Life of Brian. Mm Mm-hmm. Which ends with the hero literally being fucking crucified. (laughs) As violations go, it's hard to imagine something less funny than being crucified. But it works in the movie because the movie, the entire movie has set you up to not take it very seriously. And because the people being crucified are singing and dancing and having a grand old time in the process. So it is relatively (laughs) benign. All right, so none of these theories, obviously, is really comprehensive. I don't know that any of them actually explain anything about the art of comedy, Mm -hmm. but I thought it would be a place to start the conversation. No, I think it's good to, you know, make it seem like we do research for these things. That's always... (laughs) we got to fill some time here in the podcast. So I spent 20 minutes looking at theories of comedy on Wikipedia and various other sources. Though I will say the benign violation theory uh, gives credence... And sort of validates the fact that I laugh at children when they fall. Because you say that No, it too. doesn't. It does because they're always okay. I never laugh okay. if they're seriously hurt. If we are out in public <laughs> and there is a child playing and the child falls down and starts crying. No. My wife will laugh every single time. Okay. Let's be honest. Every single time. Let's be honest about when the only time that it happened. Was it's happened several times. Number one was the violation. So we were on a train, and there was a little boy throwing a ball in the train car, very close to my head. So violation. Okay, his mother was doing nothing about it. Then we get you hated this child. I hated this child with a fiery passion, and I hated his mother more. And then the train sort of jerks, and he sort of. Falls away, and, but he doesn't fall like I know that he's not hurt. <laughs> that's 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 the benign right, part. That's you're the benign claiming. part. Literally had to put my shades on because I'm crying tears. Of because this small child has just fallen down and started crying. I could not stop laughing and trying to stifle the laugh because his mother was sitting. She was right there, and she probably knew that I was laughing at the fact that her child just sort of rolled. On a train. Um, But he was being an asshole. So that's the thing. It's like he was the violation. He fell. He was not hurt. Benign violation theory. I am validated. I was right to laugh in that situation. I think that makes you a sociopath. It does not make the case because he wasn't hurt. The point is that it's benign. He was not hurt. And I reiterate, he was an asshole. So I feel okay about it. 
All right. So let's... I, I named some examples of things I find funny in movies. Sure. Let's hear some of the scenes that your twisted imagination finds amusing. I mean, I'm pretty... You know, Schindler's List. You, you found that yeah. a, a real laugh riot, did you? Sure. Mm-hmm. I... Uh, so comedy is sort of this weird thing to me, you know, going back to, you know, the E.B. White quote is... Trying to explain comedy is a sort is a little bit like trying to tell someone about a dream you had last night. It may seem extremely interesting, and you know, yeah. to you and the other person, just like, okay, can you just get? Can we be done with whatever this is <laughs> right now? I um, could not be less. Right, you just sort of politely right nod or chuckle along, but you just want it to end. But I also think that comedy is sort of one of those unifying things. Like if you and another person find the same thing funny, there's something sort of profoundly intimate about that. It's like we can almost probably be best friends just because we find these things funny. Um, So I've spoken on here before about my deep and abiding love for The Big Lebowski. (laughs) It's one of those movies that, you know, whenever it's on, I can stop and watch it and enjoy it just as much as I did uh, the first time. And I think... I think it actually gets better. It, I mean, because it, there's a lot going on in that movie, and <laughs> I've probably seen it so many times now that I've, I've kind of gotten everything, but, you know, those first few times that you're watching it, there's sort of something else to see and something else to sort of laugh at, and so, you know, looking at the four theories of comedy, there's a lot of them, there, you know, a number of them are in play in that movie. There's a superiority thing of, I'm just glad I'm not the dude. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> there's, um, there's the uh, incongruity of, you know... The unexpected happening um, in combination with like the sort of benign violation. So one of my favorite scenes is when the nihilists uh, break into Lebowski's house, the du- excuse me, the dude's house, and he's taking a bath, and they come in and they have this marmot on a leash, and it's like, why is it a marmot? Why do they have these marmots? <laughs> they didn't know he was in a bath, so right. he just happens to be in a bath, and they happen to be ha- have a marmot as their like I don't know mascot or something. And then they drop the marmot in the bathtub with him. He freaks out. And it's just this wonderful moment of physical comedy. And Which is one of those things. It's like you don't even know why right. that's so threatening. And yet it is. It is. It's, it's a marmot actually... in the bathtub and you're naked. And it's just like this is the most horrifying thing I've ever experienced in my life. And it's, just, and it's pitch perfect hilarious. And I love it. And there are a number of moments like that in The Big Lebowski when he, um, after he leaves Jackie Treehorn's party and he's arrested and he's in the office of the police chief of Malibu and they're just having a conversation where he's like, why are you in Malibu? Who are you? What are you doing? And the dude's in there being, you know, a smart ass. And then the police chief just chucks a mug at him and it hits him in the head. Bounces off his forehead. (laughs) And it's sort of the combination of the mug, the sound of the mug hitting (laughs) Lebowski on the head and then his reaction of like, fucking fascist and it's just like and it's like i don't know why that makes me laugh so hard but it makes me laugh so much every time i watch it the same thing when they are um when he and walter are um spreading donnie's ashes and walter you know the dude is standing behind walter and walter releases the ashes and they just blow back on the dude and just cover his and face. he just stands there perfectly still and it's just like covered in donnie's ashes. wonderful moment of absurdity of just like this is just one more fuck up and it's just like so that movie is just full of things like that on top of the the sort of verbal comedy and humor of it it's also just there's some moments of just absurd physical comedy that i love I, I do think, like, that entire movie is an example of the incongruity theory mm-hmm. of comedy. Just because it's like, okay, we're going to take this classic, hard-boiled, noir mm-hmm. detective story 
and we're going to plot this lazy stoner guy down in the middle of it and, and see how he navigates yeah. in the detective role. Yeah. And it's just brilliant. It really is. It's a really, really funny movie. And, you know, you and I were talking recently sort of about our differences in what we choose to watch and sort of what we sit down and, and actively put on. I tend to be a passive viewer for the most part. I, like, I'll turn something on and if it's something I can ignore, all the better. Mm-hmm. I don't, I, there isn't a lot that I actively sit down and watch when we're talking about television or film, really. But you are a fan of, like, the the British crime dramas and things like that, and, you know, which are all, you know, really well done and, and interesting. But I, if I'm going to actively sit down and watch something, nine times out of ten it's going to be a comedy. I'm going to pick something probably right. that I've seen a thousand times that I know I will, will make me laugh just because that's sort of how I use entertainment. It's just like I want to, I want something that I know will get me to have that sort of release, the Freud release, I guess, and then sort of uh, be done with it. So another movie that does that for me is Harlem Nights, which is another one that I've talked about <laughs> on here. <laughs> and it's just... I mean, it's just, again, it's one that I could quote all day, every day. And I think the, the, the one scene that I probably love the most, again, is the garbage can that's fight between Della Reese and Eddie Murphy. And that sort of gets at that sort of incongruity idea of, like, you don't expect Della Reese to be in an alley fighting with garbage cans and swearing <laughs> up and down. So it's just this, this perfect moment of, like, you don't expect that sort of activity and that sort of language to be coming from that person. And it's perfect. For, for a lengthy and just incredibly drunken <laughs> conversation about the garbage can fight, I have to direct listeners to our... It, it was during the episode on The Godfather it was, that we ended up talking about Because there was a garbage that, can right? fight in The Godfather, yes. 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 <laughs> yes, a subpar in comparison, garbage can fight. Our listeners are also, by now, they've identified the, like, half a dozen movies that you've right, seen exactly. that you will reference that every, I will single reference time. every single time because that's how i watch movies it's like i know that i love this movie i'm going to watch this movie um, especially <laughs> if it's something about making me laugh i need that to hit like if i go see a comedy and i'm expecting to laugh and it doesn't do it i'm pissed off more than any other film any other sort of genre but yeah and i think it also speaks to the fact that i just find profanity very funny when it's well done i think it's hilarious <laughs> So there's going to be some good examples of that in this week's movie. Okay. And there's going to be some even better examples of that in next week's movie. See, I just, I love, I love a good swearing down. I love it. I mean, it's one of the reasons why I love um, Ian McShane's character in Deadwood. It's just poetry. That's that's just a master class. It's just beautiful poetry. (laughs) That is just Shakespearean (laughs) level profanity on that show. So it doesn't, which probably makes me like a teenage boy or something like my, I'm, you know, it's a low bar, but. If you can swear and swear well, I'm, I'm on board. I'm, like, halfway there. Um, Even, like, and I, you know, am 10 or 15 years past watching South Park. Mm-hmm. But I remember the first couple seasons of South Park. It was just funny. Yeah. Just to see cute little Peanuts-style yeah. animated children swearing. Yeah. It was just, just like, funny. Because it's moment of transgression and surprise. It's just like, oh, did they just say, oh, my God. It's just like... Um, let's see. Uh, continuing with Eddie Murphy, I have to mention Coming to America, which I think also had its, like, 20th or 30th anniversary or something recently. Yeah, I think that's another, yeah, I think that's um, another 1988 film. And it's just fucking hilarious. And, you know, from the Miss Black Awareness pageant where you have 
Randy Watson and his band Sexual Chocolate singing the worst rendition of the greatest love of all you've ever heard in your life. And then he has another mic drop at the end of it. It's just perfect. Um, and there's so many scenes in that movie. I mean, any of the scenes in the barbershop are hilarious um, and highly quotable. It's fantastic. I love Coming to America. And there was actually, it's like, and you and I have talked about this a little bit, and I, you know, I don't think comedy has the sort of market cornered on this, but for me, probably, in terms of how films sort of seep into my DNA and sort of become a part of my language, that tends to happen more with comedies than with any other films. So a couple of Halloweens ago, the, uh, the Wiener Circle in Chicago redid their whole facade <laughs> to look like McDowell's right. from Coming to America. And it gave me such delight, I can't even tell you. And then on top of that, some guy came in dressed as King Jeffy Jofer, um, who is played by uh, James Earl Jones. Jones in the film. Like the whole like lion head <laughs> sash. And, and I peed myself laughing because it was so fucking funny. And it's just like this made-up brand that is now just in my head and is almost as real as anything else. Same thing with Soul Glow. Soul Glow does not exist. It is not a real product, but it is in my head. <laughs> and I just love it. So, yeah. I mean, I think the only, you know, one other big one for me would be Black Dynamite, which I think I've always, I've also talked about before. And there, again, there are just so many scenes in that one. You just have some great comedians in there. Tommy Davidson is cream corn. is so good. Are there that many movies you and I agree are funny? We agree on the Big Lebowski. We agree on the Big Lebowski. Um, Spinal Tap. We both oh, absolutely, tap. Spinal Tap. Yeah, I think we have our humor matches up fairly well. <laughs> I mean, there's. I mean, you love the Monty Python stuff more than I do. I just right. and I I see at that point. I just I'm. There's something in me that I just don't get. I it. think we need to watch Holy Grail again. No, we absolutely do not. Um, <laughs> Office Space. We both like Office Space. Uh-huh. Um, we both love In the Loop with Peter Capaldi because, again, yes. Peter Capaldi is an excellent swear. Raising Arizona. Raising Arizona. So I think the Coen Brothers stuff yeah, we mostly Brothers agree on. Yeah, the Coen Brothers stuff we mostly agree on. You don't love Coming to America. I don't. I yeah. find that movie a little overrated. See, I think it's hilarious. I think there are places where we are on the same page and other places where we're not. Like So recently you showed me the scene from the Blues Brothers where the nun <laughs> is hitting them with the rulers. <laughs> and it's like, I'm like, okay, yeah, this is funny. But I'm not, like, dying laughing at from it. And I was. And you were, like, on the floor rolling at the scene. And I was like, oh, I just don't. And that's not a movie as a whole that I love as much as a lot of other people do. But that one scene of the nun just whacking them with a roller right. just cracks me up. And I don't even know why. Right. And that's the thing with comedy. like, I understand. And I think I said this when we um, watched Life of Brian. I understand the mechanics of it and why it would be funny. And, like, I'll give it a little chuckle. But it wouldn't be, like, oh, this is the scene that makes me... Roll on the floor. Okay, well, I'm, you know, just preparing for you not finding <laughs> this movie funny, so. I'm sure it's hilarious, dear. <laughs> we could just watch The Big Lebowski instead, I right, guess. Right, and just talk about The Big Lebowski, or Black Dynamite, or Coming to America, or any of those films. I would be happy to do that. Otto is a man of many talents. Hey, great fish! That'll squeeze a lemon, some tartar sauce. Ken Buck is a man of few words. Tell him from me. 
George is the man with the plan. Thirteen millions, my friends. And Wanda. Do you speak Italian? Molto pericoloso. Is the woman they love. They all set out to commit the perfect crime. To 20 million. To a job well done. But it turned into something... George moved the loot? Less than perfect. Disappointed! So they turned to a lawyer named... Archie Leash! Leach. George is going to tell him what the diamonds are. With Wanda as the bait. I want you to make love with me. Pop. Nothing, nothing. He's really hooked. I thought you weren't jealous. I'm not. I don't believe in jealousy. It's for the weak. Come on, girl, as bright as you could have a brother who's so... Don't call me stupid. I'm really, really sorry. I apologize unreservedly. Are you totally deranged? You're afraid so, old chap. John Cleese. Will you leave immediately, please? Jamie Lee Curtis. Kiss me there. Kevin Clyde. Put the other one up. Michael Palin. May I kiss you, Ken? No, you can't! A fish called Wonder. <laughs> A smashing. Oh, dear. Comedy. Okay, so what do you actually know about A Fish Called Wanda? Um, I don't know a whole lot. I know that it stars Jamie Lee Curtis and Kevin Klein and John Cleese. Mm-hmm. I know that there's a fish tank with diamonds in it. And <laughs> sort of. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's all I know. Okay. You've like seen, like, probably I've like what, come across it watching it on cable something or something. Something like that, yeah. A few mm-hmm. times. So you've seen little bits and pieces right. of it, maybe. Right, But I've never sat down and watched the whole film. Okay. So, this was, again, it was this week in 1988, this film was released, written by John Cleese, and he actually spent years writing this movie, getting it just right. Okay. Famous perfectionist John Cleese. Um, Directed by Charles Crichton, who had not made a movie in, like, 20 years at that point. He was best known for, there was a studio in England, uh, Ealing Studios, which made these sort of light caper heist films mm-hmm. like the lady killers and the lavender hill mob which Crichton directed and a fish called wonder is very much in the spirit of those films of these sort of like quirky bumbling mm-hmm. heist characters mm-hmm. it was made for about eight million dollars it made 62 million dollars it was a pretty big hit it was the number 12 film of 1988 outperforming uh die hard for example <laughs> And coming to America. Oh, bullshit. Bullshit on that. <laughs> and I think it's I think it's probably the most successful of the post-Python Python films. Okay. Uh, so it's John Cleese and Michael Palin, both mm-hmm. from Python, are in this film. Neither of whom had as good a movie, I think, afterwards, as successful a movie afterwards. Mm. In fact, the entire cast of this movie, Cleese, Palin... Line and Jamie Lee Curtis mm-hmm. got together for a not a sequel, but they just made another movie a few years later called Fierce Creatures. Oh, which was a bomb. I've never and heard of it. Was, I've only seen it once. <laughs> I think it has developed sort of a cult following now. But when it came out, everybody was like, "Yeah, this is not yeah. as good as A Fish Called Wanda." Yeah. Ebert, Roger Ebert gave Fish Called Wanda four stars. He said it's the funniest movie I have seen in a long time. It goes on the list with the producers. This is Spinal Tap and the early Inspector Clouseau movies. It is number fifteen on Rolling Stone's Reader's Poll of the twenty-five funniest movies of all time. It was at the time the most successful British comedy ever released in the United States. Kevin Klein won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor for this film. Oh, okay. 
which is something that almost never happens. A comedy, for, yeah. For a comedic performance. Yeah. And I don't think his is the best performance in the movie. I love this movie for John Cleese and Jamie Lee Curtis's performance. Mm. But we'll see what you think of it. Okay. Uh, I don't know that we have anything else to talk about. <laughs> well, let's just go watch the movie. Okay. You said you loved him! That's right, Otto! Now here's a multiple choice question for you. A. Wanda was lying. B. Wanda was telling the truth. Which one are you going to pick? What was the first one? You told me you were not planning to see him! I knew you would come along and fuck it up! I was dealing with something delicate, Otto. I'm setting up a guy who's incredibly important to us who's going to tell me where the loot is and if they're going to come and arrest you and you'll come loping in like Rambo without a jockstrap and you dangle him at a fifth floor window. Now, was that smart? Okay. Was it shrewd? Was it good tactics or was it stupid? Don't call me stupid. Oh, right. To call you stupid would be an insult to stupid people. I've known sheep that could outwit you. I've worn dresses with higher IQs, but you think you're an intellectual, don't you, ape? Apes don't read philosophy. Yes, they do, Otto. They just don't understand it. Now, let me correct you on a couple things, okay? Aristotle was not Belgian. The central message of Buddhism is not every man for himself. You read... And the London Underground is not a political movement. Those are all mistakes, Otto. I looked them up. Okay, we're back. During the break, Nakia and I watched A Fish Called Wanda. Nakia, what did you make of this comedic classic? It was f- <laughs> funny. I did not love it, I have to say. I did not love it. Okay, why not? Um, I just didn't find it as... I think y- you had hyped it up to be this really funny comedic watershed moment, and I just didn't, I didn't feel that. Really. You weren't feeling it. I wasn't feeling it. It was not bad. I think it's 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 funny. It definitely wouldn't be one of my go to movies when I want to laugh. Okay. Did any part of it work better for you than <laughs> any other? It's not that it didn't because it's kind of a weird mixture of tones and characters. Mm, I mean, it seems. I like... feel like there's like about three different movies happening simultaneously. Um, I didn't actually get that feeling. It no? felt like a. You know, a pretty straightforward farce to me. I didn't. It didn't feel like a bunch of different movies sort of tacked on to each other. Yeah, it felt like it was like a, a farce. Because I thought watching it this time, I feel like everybody's in a slightly different movie. Mm-hmm. Kevin Klein <laughs> is just so over the top and eccentric, and yeah, he's like a he's like a live action Warner Brothers yeah. character. Mm-hmm. Michael Palin for a lot of the movie is off on his own. On his own. Doing the try to kill the old lady subplot. Which has its own sort of Acme vibes. Right. Yes. Again, that Mm -hmm. is kind of a Wile E. Coyote situation. You've got the heist Mm storyline. And you've got the love story, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Mm -hmm. So I feel, watching it this time, I wasn't sure all of that worked together. But I think the movie as a whole still works for me. Okay. Uh, But... Sounds like maybe it didn't so much for you. I'm not saying that it's bad at all. That's not what I'm saying. Um, it was enjoyable, but again, it, it would not, you know, rank in my ride or die comedy film vault. It wouldn't. It probably would not make it in there. No. Okay. All right. Well, let's go through this a little bit. Okay. So the plot is actually 
fairly simple. Mm-hmm. So we have the heist, they steal the diamonds, uh, then they all turn on each other. Right, no honor among thieves. Right. Jamie Lee Curtis and Kevin Klein, who are secretly lovers but pretending to be brothers. Brother and sister. Brother and sister. <laughs> yes. Turn on George, the leader of the gang, mm-hmm. who Jamie Lee Curtis is also sleeping with. Jamie Lee Curtis is basically sleeping with everyone in this she is. movie. She's definitely the sort of femme fatale sort yes. of character. And can I say, this is sort of a okay. side thing and, you know, my own issues. I'm always surprised at how easy that seems in films to, like, completely stupefy a man just by sort of pouting and pointing your breasts at him. Yeah, I'm no, not it, saying... It really is that easy. I'm not saying that Jamie Lee Curtis says she's smoking hot. <laughs> But it's just like, does that really have, can you just go, you know, coo a little bit and laugh at their terrible joke and they will just open the vault for you? (laughs) Well, this is part of what I'm saying about this movie too, though, is because it is a very broad, sort of almost obvious performance from her. It's not sophisticated seductress. Mm -hmm. It is, like you say, just, you know, very sort of cartoonish, femme fatale. But I think it's a really good performance because I think there's like more subtle things going on underneath that performance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because you are never quite sure whether she actually cares about about anybody in the movie or whether she's just jerking everybody around. But I I think her seduction of everybody is believable. I mean, I think it's believable with Otto, Kevin Klein's character, Mm -hmm. because he's an idiot. (laughs) But he reads Nietzsche. (laughs) (laughs) And I think it's believable with John Cleese's character because he's so repressed Mm -hmm. and so very, very British. And just so, as he says to her later in the film, just dead yeah and just so desperate for anything resembling life and adventure and so yes the first time she bats her eyes at him he is pretty much a goner yeah okay so just back to sorry basic plot you yes uh (laughs) so they've turned on george so george gets arrested but then they discover that george has hidden the diamond somewhere right so to find out where the diamonds are Jamie Lee Curtis's Wanda is going to get close to George's uh, barrister, barrister mm-hmm. played by John Cleese. Archibald Leach, his name is, which is... Very British. Yes, it's uh, actually Cary Grant's real name. Oh, really? Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, John Cleese and Cary Grant grew up in the same area, and that's why he picked ah, that name, or okay. I don't know, something like that. So yeah, that's basically the plot, and then we have this side plot, as I said, of Michael Palin has to kill the witness in the case, which is this elderly elderly woman. British woman with three dogs. Yes. <laughs> Much like the Queen, she has these three little corgis. Yes. Or I, whatever the hell they are. I don't know what they are. I'm not good. Okay, so let's let's talk about the characters then. Okay. Where do you want to start? Um, I mean, I suppose we should start with Kevin Klein's Otto, since he's probably the <laughs> the, the the main takeaway. Oscar-winning performance. The Oscar-winning performance of this film. Kevin Klein, Shakespearean-trained actor, mm. considered one of our finest dramatic actors, mm-hmm. has never been nominated for any other role. Really? He won the Oscar for Otto. Huh. <laughs> Psychotic, stupid, ex-CIA agent. I must admit that I have seen Kevin Klein in a number of things. 
but I prefer him as Mr. Fish Odor in Bob's Burgers. <laughs> He's excellent. He should absolutely win an Emmy for that role. He is fan-fucking-tastic. But yes, Otto. So, Otto is ludicrous. Don't call him stupid. He's... <laughs> That is a ridiculous character. <laughs> I've seen interviews with him where he said he, you know, and there was apparently a lot of improvisation in I would this imagine. movie. Yeah. And he said he did stuff and came out of the scene saying, like, there's no way they will put that in the movie. <laughs> and then inevitably it was those takes that they put in the movie. Because it, I mean, yeah, it's it's a sort of perfect characterization of that, you know, that... <laughs> person it's very physical like he was it was almost like the way a dancer would use their body in the way that yeah. kevin klein used his body in just very ridiculous ways from the way that he would periodically smell his armpits <laughs> um to you know sitting in these sort of pseudo yoga yoga poses yes. and but yeah he was just ridiculous Cleese has said that the inspiration for that character began when he saw an ad in, I think, an L.A. newspaper for a guru mm-hmm. sensei type mm-hmm. person where one of the taglines on the ad said something like, Buddhism gives you a competitive edge. <laughs> <laughs> and he thought that was just such an American like, just misunderstanding of everything. I don't think that word means what you think it means. <laughs> Yeah, no, it was very much a, just like the sort of parody of the pseudo-deep American who reads and understands just enough to justify exactly what they want to do right. in their life. There is no, you know, deep analysis. There is no actual thought <laughs> happening. It's just sort of... Do you think there's some anti-Americanism going on in this film? I think there's both. I think there's anti-Americanism and anti-Britishism. Yeah. Um, I think it's, you know, mocking both. Right. Because the Americans are more alive right. and more right. spirited. Right. They are, but in service to, you know, greed and vanity right. and lust. <laughs> not in service of actually, you know, some sort of higher transcendence right. as people. And, you know, coming out of this is what, 88, 1980. So, right, we're right. Reagan is, era. Right, just, end of the Reagan, you know, Thatcher years. And at the same time, you did have the, this sort of rise of things like yoga and the whole sort of guru movement, mm-hmm. a lot of that was happening particularly on the West Coast. And it was this idea of like taking these sort of Eastern thoughts and overlaying it on sort of basically duping Westerners right. <laughs> into thinking that they were somehow, again, getting the competitive edge yeah. by going to yoga a few times a week. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's a ridiculous performance. It is. And, I mean... Jamie Lee Curtis has said that, like, the scene where they have sex, for example, that that she had her head buried in pillows just because she could not stop laughing at the faces he was making. Yes. And, you know, he's he's supposed to be speaking Italian. He's basically... Just naming like pastas and things. And yeah, pastas it's, yeah, and it's, yeah. There's no Italian in there. And he starts singing volare. He yeah. said he ran out of cheeses, so he started singing <laughs> volare. That, I mean, the scene where he eats all of Michael Palin's fish <laughs> is just. This is, and I think it's good that we we had that conversation about benign violation mm, mm-hmm. before we discussed this movie because 
This is, on one level, an incredibly mean-spirited yes. movie. Dogs are murdered. Fish are murdered. <laughs> old ladies are murdered. Everyone is screwing everyone else. Nobody right. has any morals. Right. Not even John Cleese when it comes right Not down really, to no. It. Yeah. Jamie Lee Curtis is just cock-teasing everybody she comes across and using them for her purposes. Yeah, it's it's an incredibly mean-spirited movie to be as silly as it is. Yeah. I think, though, because it's evenly mean-spirited, like it's just making fun of everyone, mm-hmm. I think that's sort of why it works. I think if it was sort of all about mocking Americans or all about mocking the British, the British right. then maybe it would feel a little pricklier than what it is. Okay, well, let's let's talk about Cleese's character. Okay. Archibald. <laughs> Archie. Archie. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, I had not had a lot of exposure to John Cleese until you... Started forcing Monty Python on me. Started forcing Monty Python on me. And in Monty Python, he uh, he's very just sort of physical, and he very much takes advantage of, like, the length of his limbs. He's a very long yes. gentleman. And usually has some sort of funny, clipped way of speaking. Like, there's always some sort mm-hmm. of affectation happening. And so a lot of that is sort of stripped away in this role. There's a little bit of it, but he's pretty much a straight man. Yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's a surprisingly sweet vulnerable Mm -hmm. performance Mm -hmm. none of his usual arrogance he's like you say he's usually this very supercilious almost contemptuous Mm -hmm. character you know that's sort of his monty python persona right and here he's really a very sweet guy mild-mannered barrister and I think, I think he's tremendous. I think it's a great, mm. great performance. Mm-hmm. And this is part of what I mean, too, of saying, like, everybody's in a slightly different movie. Mm-hmm. Like, there is a real character there, I feel like. Mm-hmm. Even though this is a very broad... Like, he's a real person. He could be a real person. Farce. Yeah. Yeah. That scene where he and Jamie Lee Curtis are at... There's two scenes where they're at the guest house or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. But I think it's the first one where he is talking about being British and what it's like being British and being just afraid of being Pinto. embarrassed yeah. all the time. Yeah. And it's it's really kind of a sweet, touching scene. Mm-hmm. And he starts to, starts to let his hair down and is immediately embarrassed every time he does. <laughs> the scene where he takes off his clothes... As he's speaking Russian. As he's speaking Russian and dancing around the flat. That was apparently a scene where he, when he first talked to Jamie Lee Curtis about being in the movie, he said, there may be some nudity. How do you feel about that? And she said, you know what, John? Why don't you be the one to take your clothes off? <laughs> so that was her idea. That's fair. So, yeah. That is fair. So he stripped on down. Uh, but yeah, then, of course, he's immediately humiliated. Because <laughs> that's what being British is like, apparently. But no, I think it's a great performance. It makes me sad. He has said, Cleese has said that this was his big Hollywood moment and he squandered it. He said he was going through a divorce at the time when this movie came out. Mm -hmm. And so he like turned down other roles and he didn't Uh, really capitalize capitalize on on it it the way he should have. And I I don't think he ever made another great movie. He he never really had that many more leading parts. He uh-huh. mostly was just doing, you know, showing up as John Cleese from as John Cleese right. in a minor supporting role, right. um, or doing voiceover work, or you know, sort of these sort of novelty parts. But like watching it this time, I was wondering, and maybe he did something that I'm not aware of. But it's like I would like to see a dramatic mm. role mm-hmm. from John Cleese. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure we ever got that. Okay, well, what about Wanda? <laughs> 
Wanda. I mean, yeah, again, it was just, I'm always sort of just dumbfounded by those types of characters. <laughs> just like, you know, the, I think it's more a failing of mine in that I didn't cultivate those talents and those gifts and, and, you know, genetics did not provide me with those talents or those gifts. But I was just... Bitch, please. I really don't. I don't. Like, it's that very, um, uh, what's her name? From Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Jessica Rabbit. That, right. It's the Jessica Rabbit thing of just like, I'm not bad, I'm drawn that way. It's just like some people are drawn that way. I am not drawn that way. But so, you know, it would be easy to sort of write a character like that off and say, oh, well, she's just sort of the dumb bimbo with the body and she's mm-hmm. just drawn about it. But she's actually quite smart and you have to be smart. Yeah, if to, anyone in the gang right, is smart, it's her. To leverage it in the right way and to right. recognize how you can use it with and use it differently with each person. So yeah, I mean, yeah, Wanda was definitely the most sort of savvy character of the cast. In particular, that scene where she and Otto get in an argument <laughs> yes. because she had called him stupid or something. Yes. And he was like, don't call me stupid. And she's like, you know what? You are stupid. And let me tell you why you're stupid. <laughs> and then goes on to give all these yeah. examples of just ridiculously inane things that he has said. And the like, London Underground right. is not a political movement. I looked it up. You were wrong. <laughs> and it's just like... But it's that perfect moment. I mean, I think, you know, most women have had that experience where you have a man trying to explain something to you or tell you something. And you may not in the moment know that he's wrong, but you eventually find out that he's wrong. And, and then you just get to a point where he's like, you know what? You're full of shit. <laughs> you're and let right. me tell you why you're full of shit. <laughs> like, I'm not going to deal with it anymore. So I thought that was a fantastic scene. She was very it was a great scene. funny and smart in it. But yeah, I mean, she had to play, you know, a number of different characters because she was a different person with all of those men. She was a different yeah. person with George. She was a different person with Otto. And she was a different person with Archie. Yeah. Um, and she it was seamless. And it was believable for the most part. Okay, so what's your read on her true feelings, if she has, or does she have any? <sighs> That's complicated. So their last rendezvous in the vacation home where Archie is caught, you know, speaking Russian naked. Right. Um, she asks him, are you rich? Yes. And he says no, and you can see her face go, oh, well, fuck, waste right. my time. Like, it's just like, but, she, but she cared enough to consider the possibility yes. that if like, he was maybe rich. Maybe I could be with you. Right. Which, you know, boss bitch move. Like, don't be with broke people. Now, is that about him, or is about that about the fact that she has this weird sexual language fetish? I mean, I definitely think his being able to speak Russian is a... You know, Italian yeah. head pushed her buttons, yeah. and then she discovered And she's basically Russian. humping a rope, yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I don't. I really don't even understand that at all. Like, that whole thing, not at all. I mean, partially because it's Russian. Like, it's it sounds like somebody's drinking borscht. Like, it's just, like, it's not a great thing. Um, but, so, yeah, so I think that... She, this is going to sound very sort of callous, but I think she's smart. Like, just don't be with broke people. It's not, you know, love is easier when the person has money. It really is. But in the end, she does end up going to, where are they, Belize or Rio or something? I think they're on their way to either Rio or Buenos Aires. Somewhere, right. So it's she and Archie on the plane, you know, with the diamonds, of course. But it's she and Archie on the plane together. Well, except she gets on the plane first she with does. the diamonds. But she calls and Archie. She, doesn't, she does try to call Archie, but she's not waiting around for Archie. Well, no, either. no. If, if the plane would leave because again, on it, she's smart. She's like, well, I got my diamonds. <laughs> so you can find somebody else that speaks Russian. And there was apparently an ending of this film shot that made it more ambiguous. Mm-hmm. 
and I've, I've seen the clip of the deleted scene where she had on these weird, like, shark shoes, by which I mean her shoes looked like sharks. Okay. They had, like, a shark head mm-hmm. on the end of her shoes, and the final shot was supposed to pan down to those. And to hear her, Jamie Lee Curtis, describe it, she said that was supposed to indicate that as soon as they got to Rio, she was going to club John Cleese over the head and make <laughs> off with the diamonds. Sharks that she was alone. just That she was a shark. That she they, was just totally a alone, man. Yeah. I, and I think they decided at some point, they kind of went back and forth on it and decided, you know what? This relationship is the emotional core of the movie, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and people don't want to see, you know, people want an actual love story here. See, I don't. You don't? I don't. No. I would be fine with her being like, okay, and as soon as we <laughs> land, I'm going to murder you and take my diamonds. He doesn't deserve that. I, no, I'm not saying that he deserved anything, but I'm saying if she did it, I wouldn't have been mad at her. <laughs> I'd be like, you know what? You do you, bitch. Yes. So you don't buy, you don't buy the love story? Um, it's not that I don't buy the love story. I'm, you know me, like, I'm very rarely invested in the love story because I'm a cold, heartless person. But, yeah. I mean, what is that relation based on other than lies, really? Well, I mean, I I was watching it this time trying to see if there's a moment where she actually really starts to care something. Mm-hmm. For Archie. And I think there are a couple hints of it throughout. Um, I think those two scenes in the in the guest house there, she's definitely warming to him <laughs> sure. at that point. She's still playing a part. Yes. But he's so, like, just nakedly sincere. Mm-hmm. I think, and this is where I think her performance is very good. I think you can see that genuinely move her mm-hmm. in a couple of moments. Where she's sort of touched by just how rawly infatuated he is with her. Right, but he's rawly infatuated with someone who's willing to touch him. <laughs> like, that's the thing. It's like, if it wasn't her, if it had been anybody else, he, I think it would have been sort of the same situation. It's like, he just needed to be touched and to be kissed and to be, you know, because his wife was just frigid. And well, angry. his wife was awful. She was just, you know, unpleasant. His wife and his daughter. And this is, again, coming back to this just being sort of a mean-spirited movie. Mm-hmm. He leaves his wife and daughter without a thought at because the end of this movie. Because they are terrible. Because they are just awful, awful people, apparently. Yes. So, you know, this idea of like, oh, well, is it true love? It's like, well, she was the first one to touch his peppy <laughs> in like 30 years. <laughs> So, yeah, okay. I guess he's You're in love. so cynical. I mean, but that's pretty true, though. So, you know, I just, <laughs> again, take your diamonds and run, bitch. But like, then at the end of the movie, he, you know, starts to become the, like, right at the end of the movie, he sort of kicks into action hero mode. Barely. What? Barely. Barely. <laughs> the only reason he gets out of it alive is because Michael Palin runs Kevin Klein over with, with a steamroller. Um, because he was standing in a jar of tar, basically concrete, concrete yeah. whatever. Um, no, Kevin. I mean, oh no, no, yeah. you're yes. John Cleese was standing in a barrel of oil. Oil. Kevin Klein was standing in wet concrete, right. which again is just cartoon exactly. logic. And the steamroller thing is like it's a steamroller, yeah. moving along at four miles an hour right. towards him. I don't know that he can coming to kill me. 
I'm pretty sure some sort of stutterers of America or something, you know, <laughs> were not happy about this film. They made a lot of fun of Well, no, they they were upset with this film. Was there was it? a big protest about this film <laughs> and about Michael Palin's performance. And I think we discussed this when we talked about Life of Brian. Uh, Michael Palin, because in Life of Brian, Michael Palin also plays Pontius Pilate, right. if you remember. Right, with, with the, the speech. Big of Dickens. Yes. Uh, but Michael Palin based this performance on his father, who stammered. Oh. And after this movie came out and after all of the protests, Michael Palin founded a school for speech impediments oh. in, in Great Britain. <laughs> so he took his money and, you know, said, okay, I'm going to make some reparations here. I made fun of you. Now here, <laughs> have a school. That was nice. But come on, that, we haven't talked about Ken. That is also a great performance. It is. And he may have the harder job in that he doesn't really have anyone. He, well, he has fewer opportunities to really interact with any of the other characters. He's right. mostly off on his sort of own story uh, because George sends him out to basically get rid of the old lady witness. <laughs> right. And he is, you know, hesitant to just go and kill her directly. So he sort of tries to find all these ways to, overly elaborate ways to kill her and, you know, fails every time at killing her, but does succeed <laughs> in killing her dogs one at a time. Which is just tragic because he is an animal lover. Avid animal lover. And, you know, they just ridiculous ways. I think one of them has like a, is it a piano or something? Some sort <laughs> it's of a big concrete block or something. Dropped on him. Yeah. Then he sicks a, a, like a pit bull on them and the pit bull just... <laughs> takes one of the dogs in his mouth runs and runs off. So, you know, it's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. Is it, it, it is very wily e. Coyote. It is it's like very all of his elaborate e. plans that just go wrong. Yeah. So he has a rough time <laughs> in the film. <laughs> but he's probably the most endearing character e... of all of them. Yes. Although again, a murderer. Yeah, absolutely a murderer. <laughs> Absolutely but, but kind of sweet. Very sweet. I mean, you know, he's a bumbling murderer <laughs> with a stutter. So, And that final scene with him and John Cleese, where he's trying to get him to say the name or tell him where the jewels are. Kevin Klein. No, with John Cleese. Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, well, okay. Well, actually, you're right. We should talk about that scene first. <laughs> the chips up the nose yes. scene. Yes. <laughs> yes. Which struck me... As exceedingly cruel. Like, I had not thought about someone shoving fries up your nose. But then it's, to have ketchup on yeah, it. Yeah, it's the one with the ketchup like, on it. motherfucker. Like, you don't like. And I was sitting there as if he was plucking his eyes out. I was just like, oh my god, I'm really uncomfortable right now. I never thought. Right. How sort of sort of disconcerting being threatened with fries. <laughs> it's almost it's like the reservoir. Yeah, dog it's scene. just like right. It's, like it's, it's almost like, that bad. And so it was a it, and again whoever wrote that. Oh, I'm really, sorry, that's a chip up the nose. Right, because it's just like well, who would even think of it? And but it is it's just really menacing in a way that you don't expect. It's like are you you fucking psycho? You put a ketchup fry up my nose. What do the English eat with chips to make them more interesting? And then he just eats the fish. And then he just eats all the fish. Which I'm sure PETA was calling. And you, you think the one fish is going to survive? Yeah. And it's not. No. They're all gone. <laughs> they're all gone. He ate all of your fish. So an interesting side note about this. 
uh, when this scene played in Belgium in 1988 with this movie, Ole Benson, a Belgian audience member, was so tickled by the scene in which Ken has french fries stuck up his nose that he actually laughed himself to death. He died? He died, literally died laughing watching that scene. Wasn't that funny? Well, apparently he... Ole had had eaten a lot of french fries in his life. Apparently he had, at some point in his life, stuck cauliflower up his nose and the nose of his family members, and it was a big joke. And so this scene brought that back to him, and that was why he was laughing at it so hard. Okay. This sounds like an urban legend. It has been verified. His son has confirmed that that's why he died laughing watching that scene. Wow. (laughs) I I will link to the articles in the show notes. It's a hell of a way to go. (laughs) How do you even cry at that funeral? You don't. don't, Like, you you don't cry at that funeral. You you can't. You're just like, Mm -mm. what the fuck? Okay, but then, yes, I started to talk about the scene then when John Cleese comes and unties him Mm -hmm. and tries to find out where the diamonds are. He's very patient. And Michael Palin cannot get it out. That scene made me laugh more than I remember (laughs) doing when I watched it this time. And Palin is just so... Struggling. And John Cleese is like, sing it. (laughs) And it just goes on. Apparently that scene went on for like about 20 minutes mm. in the original version. Yeah. And there was, it got very elaborate. It was, you know, like a huge elaborate Monty Python skit yeah. where, you know, they're trying to find a pen so we could write it down. The pen has no ink. They find a pencil. The pencil needs to be sharpened. They can't find anything to sharpen the pencil. There's a typewriter, but there's no paper. So they're trying to put Kleenex into the typewriter. <laughs> like it, go- it went on forever. <laughs> And apparently it was very funny, but it just brought the movie to a a crashing halt. Mm -hmm. So they narrowed it down. And I think what's there is brilliant. I think it's hysterically (laughs) funny. All right. Well, did you laugh during this movie? I mean, I chuckled a bit. uh, But I would not say that I was, you know, near death or anything like that with laughter. You said you find profanity funny. Did you I not do. find some of the swearing funny? Some of the Kevin swearing Klein has some pretty yes. operatic swearing scenes. Kevin Klein has some great scenes. Um, including the classic line, which I probably quote more often than anything from this the movie. The Vulgarian quote. You're yeah. the Vulgarian, you fuck. Yes, that is a beautiful line. I also like the, the sort of callback to every time he drives off and nearly <laughs> crashes into someone, he yells out the window, asshole! <laughs> um, so yes, Kevin Klein did it. Excellent job with his swearing. I think he was. I actually think he probably. I I can see why he was nominated for the Oscar. He was the sort of almost phantom through the entire film. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just sort of always lurking in the background. And yes, appearing that scene then, where they are finally about to have right. sex, and he you he pops up outside the window. <laughs> you just see his face peeking in. You know, and, and the scene where. Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis first goes to Archie's home. You know, he comes in and just ruins yes. the whole thing. That's that's a classic farce yeah. setup where, you know, like, characters walk out of the right. room and other characters And somebody's walk hiding in behind and, a curtain yeah. and just out of sight. And so that was great. And then the scene where... He pretends to be Mr. Manfringen. Right, exactly. With the CIA? Is it the CIA? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and the scene where Archie is 
trying to stage a robbery in his own home. By breaking into his own So that he can get Wanda's necklace back. And then uh, Otto comes in and, you know, is just like, oh, you think you can come in here and rob my friend's house? And just goes through the whole thing and realizes that he's beat, who he's, you know, knocked out as Archie. He's like, oh. (laughs) And apologizes to him. Right. But then gets mad. And kicks him in the stomach. And kicks him some more because he... Um, so yeah, I think Kevin Klein is, is, you know, some kind of brilliant in this movie. Yeah, but it wasn't laugh out loud for me. I'm sorry. No, it's way funnier than say. Careful. Coming to America. It's not. It I mean, is. It is not it for is me. Not. I was, that's fine. We can disagree on that. But I think Coming to America is funnier for me. Did you have a favorite part of this movie? Probably the French fry part. The what? The French fry up the nose. Part. Oh, the French fry up the nose. <laughs> That's probably my favorite. Okay. And a least favorite part? Uh, least favorite. I don't know that I had a least favorite. No. George was kind of useless. Yeah, George was not really yeah. much of a character. But no, I mean, yeah. I think you like this movie more than you're pretending to. No, I, I, again, I said, I said I did not like it. I, I, think it's, I think it's well done. I think it's funny. Would it be, you know, in my sort of rotation of funny films? Probably not. No. All right, fair enough. So was it as funny as you remember it? Um, I don't think it was as laugh out loud funny as I remembered it, but mm-hmm. I think it I think this time it was the performances I noticed. Mm-hmm. And particularly Cleese and Jamie Lee Curtis. Like I think those I appreciated those just as acting mm-hmm. performances more than I probably did the first few times I saw this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I still, I still think it's funny. <laughs> I still think those are just there are some classic moments in this and some classic exchanges. That yeah, keep this pretty solidly in the canon for me. Any final thoughts? I want some fries. <laughs> Ketchup. Sure, why not? That can be arranged. Have a seat in this chair right here. <laughs> That's our show. We want to thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week as we celebrate the 30th anniversary of yet another classic comedy from 1988, Midnight Run. Is that the one with the cowboy in New York? Uh, no. What you're thinking of there would be Midnight Cowboy. So, okay, so we... Okay, that's what the, okay don't say it like that. I'm crazy <laughs> for getting those things mixed up. <laughs> it's two white dudes. Nor is it the one that takes place in a Turkish prison, which is Midnight Express. Mm. See, I don't know yet. Uh, only... Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, Evil is a whole other movie. Yeah. Okay, so no. Okay, but what I'm saying is the two movies that I confused were close enough that it was Midnight understandable. Midnight Run and Midnight Cowboy. Yes. Neither of which you've seen, so I don't know how you think But they're, they're both the about, movie. like, two men walking, like, trying to go somewhere. <laughs> right? Uh... Yes, that okay. is absolutely accurate. There you as go. Far as it okay, goes. so <laughs> show me some respect. <laughs> so that's what you have to look forward to next week. In the meantime, you can find us on the web at unaffiliatedcritic.com, follow us on Twitter at Free Range Critic, or send an email to Michael at unaffiliatedcritic.com. In any of these places, we encourage you to suggest a movie Nakia desperately needs to see to make her life complete. Until next time, remember, true love means subjecting your partner to movies they really, really don't want to watch.
I'm gonna go try to get things with my boobs. I wish you luck with that. Thank you. If I'm able to get money, I'm going to leave you. <laughs> Heads up. Heading off to Rio? Yeah. Alone, though. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> yeah. 